You're listening to Dare Dreamer FM, the sound of creative expression. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Imagine, if you will, a small, three-bedroom, two-bath home in the hills of Altadena, California. The smell of roast turkey and baked macaroni and cheese consumed the air. Sitting on a 70s shag carpet in the living room as a young, nappy-headed little boy transfixed by the television. Hour after hour, he's mesmerized by stories that are both supernatural and sublime, covering every genre from sci-fi to horror to comedy. Who knows what long-term effects are being imprinted on his brain as he watches shows about giant aliens playing with human dolls, pool players making deals with the devil, and airplanes getting lost in the Bermuda Triangle. That boy is Ron Dawson, and he's just entered the Twilight Zone Marathon. Holiday traditions are something special. A couple of days ago, I uploaded a Thanksgiving special about The Wizard of Oz. If you haven't already listened to it, be sure to do so. I think you'll find it particularly moving. I mentioned in that episode how watching Wizard of Oz was a tradition my mom, brother, and I did every Thanksgiving Day evening. But there was another Thanksgiving Day tradition we had. While other boys were probably watching whatever football games were playing all day long, my holiday watching activities were invested in the Twilight Zone. You see, every year on Thanksgiving, KTLA Channel 5 in Los Angeles aired a Twilight Zone marathon that started about 6 or 8 in the morning and lasted until about 8 that evening. And my brother and I were with it every step of the way. Well, that is until dinner time and The Wizard of Oz was on. But apparently, Thanksgiving is not the only holiday known for its Twilight Zone marathons. No, it's not. For the past few years, the Sci-Fi Channel runs a full marathon of the Twilight Zone episodes. That's Radio Film School assistant producer Chris Husledge. Every New Year's for 24 hours, as you debate what changes you want to make in your life in the new year, you get to see as many episodes exploring the fifth dimension, the dark side of man, and all the curious, mysterious, twisted stories that one individual could come up with. That individual was Rod Serling. Rod Serling got his big break in 1958. Despite having been a freelance writer for several years and having a number of his scripts turned into radio or smaller television programs, Rod had never really broken into mainstream. He saw that if he didn't want his work censored or torn apart by producers who cared about nothing but ratings, then he needed to create and produce his own television show. In 1958, he pitched a script entitled Time Element to CBS, hoping it would be enough to get him to create his own TV series. While CBS liked the script and purchased it from Rod, they shelved it until they could find a better use for it. And so for a year, Rod kept plugging away with his freelance writing until a producer decided that Time Element would be a great addition to his show. Time Element was created and had Desi Arnaz as the host. Ratings soared as people loved the show and the dark twists that ended it. CBS saw that there was much potential to his series, so they negotiated to deal with Rod, and in 1959, he unleashed his show, The Twilight Zone, onto the world. The show was carried by the large cult following of people, and for the most part, 
critical response was good, despite various nitpicking at some of the elements within the show. Your optimism is most refreshing, Mr. Chambers, but I suggest that for the time being, you continue your process of deciphering until you can tell us precisely, and I mean precisely, what that book says. That's a clip from one of the most popular episodes of the series, To Serve Man. The nitpicking critique that the show got was how the alien language could be deciphered without any kind of intergalactic Rosetta Stone equivalent. We've licked the title anyway. What does it say? How much does it tell us? Here it is. Well, that makes the cheese a little more binding, wouldn't you say, Colonel? Mm. I'd call that a reasonably altruistic phrase. Do you agree, Patty? Well, I, uh, well, I want to believe it, but I don't know what to think. To serve man. I hope so. I fervently hope so. The Twilight Zone is obviously known for its terrific writing, the captivating stories, and the bizarre characters. It was a show ahead of its time. If it existed today, I could see it being one of the critically acclaimed shows on a site like FX, AMC, or Netflix. Without a doubt, the single most identifiable aspect of any Twilight Zone episode was the twist. In just about every episode, there's always some twist or revelation. A real what the f moment. And for my money, the biggest W2F moment in the series has to be the aforementioned To Serve Man. TV Guide actually ranked the ending of this episode as the greatest twist of all time. M. Night Shyamalan might have something to say about that. Don't even get me started on M. Night. Anyway... Spoiler alert if you haven't seen this episode yet. The episode was number 89 and originally aired March 2nd, 1962. It was adapted from the short story of the same name written by Damon Knight. The premise is this race of aliens called the Canimates, who have come to Earth and shared their amazing technology. The technology has wiped out starvation and created peace on Earth. Literally. Russians and Americans love each other. There are no more wars. Cats and dogs are living together. Yeah, I don't think that was in the story, Ron. Anyway, as I was saying, the Canimates have created world peace. As a gift to mankind, they've also given a mysterious book, the title of which was eventually translated, To Serve Man. You see, that proves they're here to help us, right? Nope. You see, the story is told in a flashback by the main character, Michael Chambers, played by Lloyd Bachner. The episode opens with him in an empty room, and he's talking to the audience. It's actually one of the few episodes that breaks the fourth wall. He's recounting the story of how he got to be in this room. As the episode progresses, we learn that the Canimates have set up trips back to their homeworld, which is a veritable paradise. In the final sequence of the episode, we see that Mr. Chambers himself has let his suspicions subside and has booked a trip himself to the Canimates' homeworld. And as he makes his way onto the gangplank for the Canimates' spaceship, this now famous scene plays out. Again, spoiler alert. This is flight number 914 from Earth to our planet. We will be taking off in three minutes. Mr. Chambers! Mr. Chambers! Don't get on that ship! The rest of the book, to serve men, it's, it's a cookbook! <laughs> I think there are three key lessons filmmakers can take from the Twilight Zone story. First, it pays off when you stick to your artistic guns. Rod held out on making the show until he could do it in a way that maintained his vision for it. 
Second, as you allude to at the end of every episode, story matters. In fact, story is the most important thing. The Twilight Zone became the cultural phenomena it is because the right-handed stories were on point. That show had an undeniable impact on contemporary genre fiction. And three, it gave us the blueprint for a really good twist. Characters we could actually care about, a strong story and plot, a setting with some mystery to reveal, and a revelation that really knocks you out. When I think about the most famous twist in cinema history, from the original Planet of the Apes, Psycho, Chinatown, Fight Club, Usual Suspects, even Shyamalan's Sixth Sense, the best twists in movies take us on a journey in one direction, all the while hiding the true destination from the audience. And the journey by itself is worth taking, twist or not. In every film I reference, take out the twist and you still have a terrific story and movie. Even if the story itself is established as a mystery, whether or not there's a twist at the end, I still want to enjoy that ride. The twist ending only magnifies that enjoyment. When you start creating characters in a story solely with the twist in mind, that's where you get into dangerous territory. I think very few people can pull it off repeatedly. People like Rod Serling. The Twilight Zone would have a hard time maintaining its ratings, and though it would be canceled twice during its five-year tenure, it would also find a way to come back two more times. The large cult following that had been built around the show loved the fresh but dark look at life that Serling was able to bring. The Twilight Zone used science fiction as a vehicle to touch on many different subjects that were very dear to Rod, including equality among the races, the absurdity of politics, and the dire consequences of war. Here's an excerpt from a 1959 interview of Rod by news anchor and television personality Mike Wallace. Wallace and Serling are discussing Serling's distaste for the intrusions television sponsors make on the shows he had worked on in his career. I don't understand, Mike, for example, other evidences and instances of, of intrusion by sponsors. For example, on Playhouse 90, not a year ago, a lovely show called Judgment of Nuremberg. Uh, I think probably one of the most competently done and artistically done pieces that 90's done all year. In it, as you recall, uh, mention was made of gas chambers. Yeah. And the line was deleted, cut off the, cut off the, cut off the uh, soundtrack. And uh, it, might, it mattered little to these guys that the gas involved in concentration camps was cyanide, which bore no resemblance, physical or otherwise, to, to the gas used in stowed. They cut the line. Because the sponsor was... He did not want that awful association made between what was the horror and the misery of Nazi Germany with the nice, chrome, wonderfully antiseptically clean, beautiful kitchen appliances that they were selling. Now, this is an, is an example of sponsor interference, which is so beyond logic and which is so beyond taste. This I rebel against. I don't want to have to battle sponsors and agencies. I don't want to have to push for something that I want and have to settle for second best. I don't want to have to compromise all the time which in essence is what the television writer does if he wants to put on controversial themes. Well, then why do you stay in television? I stay in television because I think it's very possible to perform a, a function of providing adult, meaningful, exciting, challenging drama without dealing in controversy necessarily. I think it's criminal that we're not permitted to make dramatic note uh, of, of social evils as they exist, of controversial themes as yeah. they are, are, are inherent in our society. I, I think it's ridiculous that drama, which by its very nature should make a comment 
on those things that affect our daily lives is in the, is in the position, at least in terms of television drama, of not being able to take, these, to take this stand. Rod Serling, after having written over 50% of all the Twilight Zone episodes, having fought tooth and nail against censorship and overly bearing producers to see his true vision on the screen, and after having won many awards, including several Emmys, he saw that it was time for change. He called it quits in 1964 when CBS decided to cancel the show for a third and final time, and he sold the rights to them. He would continue writing freelance, trying to get his name and work out there, but nothing would ever reach the magnitude of the Twilight Zone. Again, this sounds defensive and it probably sounds phony, but I'm not nearly as concerned with the money to be made on this show as I am with the quality of it, and I can prove that. I have a contract with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer which guarantees me something in the neighborhood of a quarter of a million dollars over a period of three years. This is a contract I'm trying to break and get out of so I can devote time to a series which is very iffy. It's only guaranteed 26 weeks, and if it only goes 26 weeks and stops, I'll have lost a great deal of money. But I would rather take the chance and do something I like, something I'm familiar with, something that has a built-in challenge to it. So, my fellow filmmaking friends, what stories are you ready to tell and are willing to fight for? Perhaps one day, your work will transfix the minds of future nappy, curly, and matted-haired little boys and girls spending countless hours in front of their iPads, smartphones, or on their Oculus Rifts, riveted by the journeys that you will take them on. Radio Film School is a production of Dare Dreamer FM. This episode was written and produced by Chris Huslidge and me. Music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to tracks and artists are in the show notes. A link to that full interview with Rod Serling by Mike Wallace is also in the show notes. Be sure to check it out. It's really worth listening and watching. Let us know what you thought about this episode. Leave a voicemail by going to daredreamer.fm and clicking the voicemail button at the bottom of the screen. Or shoot us an email at radiofilmschool at daredreamer.fm. We love hearing from you. Also, leave us a review and rating in iTunes and tell us about your favorite Twilight Zone episode. You can follow me on Twitter at daredreamerfm and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash radiofilmschool. We'll be back next week with the regular show. Until then, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with, what you cut it on, or how cool you think your twist is. See ya. In 11 or 12 years of writing, Mike, I can lay claim to at least this. I have never written beneath myself. I've never written anything that I didn't want my name attached to. You're moving into a land of foreshadow and substance.